Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brabeck. And this week, we are doing Death on the Nile. Wait, what is that you say, Kemper? (laughs) Have we not already done Death on the Nile? I'm really just looking for an excuse to insert that record scratch sound effect. Yes, we are doing Death on the Nile, not, of course, the novel that we covered a few episodes ago, but a less famous, considerably less famous Death on the Nile of Agatha Christie's A Parker Pine short story, which came about a couple of years before the novel, which I think is a perfect segue into the publication history. Take it away, Catherine. So it was uh, first published in Cosmopolitan in the U.S. in April 1933 with three other stories. The collection was called Have You Got Everything You Want, If Not Consult Mr. Parker Pine, which is a slightly different take than Are You Happy? And I feel like a very American take, isn't it? Do you have all of the materialistic (laughs) things that you desire in your life, you greedy American? No? Then consult Parker Pine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. It was subsequently published in Nash's Pall Mall in the UK in July 1933. All right. So let's jump right in and get to our victim, who is Lady Ariadne, not Oliver, oh. but but Grail. Who knew there was another Ariadne within the Christieverse? A 48-year-old, overbearing, nervous mess of a woman who is constantly suffering from one made-up ailment or another. Unfortunately, this time, the boy is crying wolf and means it because she is suffering a lot and for real. And it turns out that it's from strychnine poisoning. And ultimately, she dies. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, so we have some suspects. Uh, We have Sir George Grail, her extremely put-upon, meek husband. who Impact, if you will. Yeah. And he sort of answers to her every whim, but he seems very much constantly under duress. And we have Miss McNaughton, Lady Grail's 35-year-old kindly nurse, who also generally assumes that Lady Grail is making up pretty much every ailment. Then we have Mr. Basil West, who's Sir George's charming, handsome young secretary. Is he tanned, do you think? You know, I actually don't think it says if he's tanned, although they (laughs) have been in Egypt for some time, so one would have to assume. Let's give Christy credit for controlling herself and not (laughs) specifying that he was tanned. (laughs) Next, we have Pamela Grail, who is Sir George's pretty young niece, who is quietly involved in a relationship with Mr. Basil West, the charming, handsome young secretary. And then we have uh, Muhammad, who is the ship's tour guide up the Nile. All right, fantastic. Well, let's talk about the world as it appears to be, because for once in a Parker Pine story, we can treat this as a fairly traditional puzzle mystery because we skipped ahead a little bit within the Parker Pine collection since we wanted to cover Death on the Nile soon after the big Death on the Nile, just, just for kicks. And later on in the Parker Pine Investigates collection, Parker Pine goes abroad and there's a whole bunch of these stories that take place in different locales. And they are a bit more of the traditional detective variety because it's less people coming in with romantic woes to Parker Pine's office in London and more people asking Parker Pine to help them while he is trying to enjoy himself. So I think we certainly, at least in this case, have a much more traditional puzzle mystery, which makes me happy. And I have a feeling Mm -hmm. it makes you happy as well, Catherine. It does. Although it doesn't seem to make Parker Pine happy. 
<laughs> no, no, it does not. We will, we will get to that. Lady Grail is basically seething mad when the story starts because she's booked this private tour up the Nile for her family and her family only. And it's very late in the season and no one else is supposed to be in the boat. And then she sees this man chilling on the deck and she's just irate. She orders her nurse, um, Elsie McNaughton, to order her husband to order the man off the boat. This is after <laughs> she already berates Muhammad. And, of course, nobody does this, and he stays. She outsources her henpecking. That's yes. how good she is at it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty immediately revealed by Pamela Grail that this is actually Parker Pine. <gasps> yeah. and that Parker sounds Pine. And that sounds familiar to her. And so Basil fills in the rest of the details, basically saying that his ad is always in the Times Agony column. Alongside Claude Luttrell's little uh, reminder. <laughs> right. In the interim, Sir George and Elsie McNaughton have a heart-to-heart where she reassures him that he hasn't done anything wrong and that you just can't please his wife because he's, you know, worried that this is just all a mess and was there anything that could have been done? And she basically says, girl, please, come on. We know that she's just always going to be like this no matter what you do. So he seems to take comfort in her words, but she then notes that this time Lady Girl's health actually does seem to be off somehow, that perhaps she's not just making it up. We cut to later... Not even the same day. And they're on this Nile trip. And Parker Pine has returned from what appears to be a very sweaty donkey ride that (laughs) I guess didn't work out so well for him. Because as we have previously been told, Parker Pine is a little uh, girthy. So (laughs) Zoftig. Yeah. And so uh, he receives a note that reads, Dear Sir... I should be obliged if you should not visit the temple of Abydos, but would remain on the boat as I wish to consult you. Yours truly, Ariadne Grail. He declines because he's on vacay, or as he says, I am at present on holiday, and like very kind of tersely turns her down. But she turns around and offers him 100 pounds, which it turns out he's actually taken a very pricey holiday trip. So (laughs) he can't really turn her down. And I love that because it's so in keeping with the character that's been established because he is somewhat mercenary. Like normally you're the the hero or at least detective protagonist of your story would be like, excuse me, madam, I cannot be bought. And Parker Pine is like, oh, no, I can 100 percent be bought. And that price is right. (laughs) Yeah, 100 pounds. 100 pounds sounded great for him. (laughs) So he waits until everyone else leaves the boat, and then he goes to see Lady Grail. She beats around the bush for a while, but finally she says that she wishes to know whether or not her husband is poisoning her. Because mm-hmm. what she has, yeah, interesting. So what she's figured out is that she she seems to get sicker when he and the others are on the boat and better when they're away. Parker Pine was not expecting this. <laughs> he's rather shocked and tells her point blank that he's not a detective, at which point I thought of you, Catherine, being like, yeah, I know. I know, Parker right. Pine. I, I know. I thought that too. <laughs> Basically, he says that he's not a detective, except, you know, you might say that he works on matters of the heart. He's a love detective, right? Although I... I think the ones who are actually called love detectives are our dear Mr. Satterthwaite and Harley Quinn, but there's certainly a comparison to be made there. Love detectives, all of them. Um, in any case, this is not a love detective case whatsoever, but uh, unfortunately, Lady Girl says, well, I already paid you, so you're going <laughs> to help me out uh-huh. here. <laughs> you're, you're trapped. You need to help me now. And he insists on knowing why she wants to know. And 
She talks about the fact that she's done everything right in her marriage. She's paid her husband's debts, paid for his niece, and she wants gratitude from her husband and from everyone in her family. She just doesn't feel like she's getting it. And she's obviously a deeply unhappy person. And Parker Pine just knows something up. And again, because he is more of a love detective who tends to focus more on the emotional connections between people, he asks her a rather curious question. Do you want your suspicions proved right or wrong? And Lady Grail is totally appalled uh, appalled by this. How dare you even, you know, think that I could possibly want my husband to be poisoning me, which of course means that's exactly what she wants. Um, But the interview ends pretty abruptly from there. After she takes her leave, um, Miss McNaughton suddenly shows up to covertly speak to Pine as well, telling him that while Lady Grail has previously, quote-unquote, enjoyed her bad health, the nurse is pretty much certain she's actively sick and that she's also pretty sure that Lady Grail's being poisoned. And she thinks that it's either arsenic or antimony. So later, before dinner, Parker Pine sees Lady Grail on the deck of the steamer, just, you know, smoking a cigarette and burning a letter, as one does (laughs) on a steamer. Just chilling. Live your best <laughs> life, lady. <laughs> yep. Later that night, Pine is roused by Muhammad, who tells him that Lady Grail is very ill. I mean, it could have been the cigarette smoking and letter burning, but in fact, that's not the case. And she's so ill that by the time he gets to her cabin, she's convulsing in the final throes of what appears to be strychnine poisoning, and she dies. Which, didn't that remind you, Catherine, of our very first murder of Agatha Christie's in the mysterious affair at Styles with Emily Inglethorpe. Yeah, yeah. More con- the convulsing of strychnine poisoning. It perhaps right. was not as dramatically rendered as in Styles, but it certainly made me think of it. It's certainly unpleasant too. It is How about certainly. That? It is certainly pleasant. By the way, the phrase that he used, I finally just found it. I am, if you like to put it that way, a heart specialist. which I think he even said in one of the other stories or maybe both of the other stories that we covered that's totally his his phrase he's a cardiologist detective so Parker Pine rushes to the deck to look to see if there's anything left of that burnt paper remember he he saw her burning something out on the deck and of course he finds a scrap of paper that says missing letter missing letter missing letter c-h-e-t of dreams. Burn this! Exclamation point. <laughs> Interesting how there's just always that convenient little scrap of, you know, can, can anyone ever burn 100% of a letter in a murder mystery? Apparently not. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would make it less convenient, wouldn't it? It would. It would. So we cut to Cairo, and officials are telling Parker Pine the following. Lady Grail, apparently, had asked for a cup of Bovril... And let's just pause for a second because believe it or not, Catherine, Bovril is a substance that actually has a somewhat literary provenance. So per my online researches, I discovered that Bovril is the trademarked name of a quote, and I'm quoting Wikipedia here, (laughs) thick and salty meat extract paste similar to a yeast extract. So basically within the same family of Marmite and Vegemite, I believe our Australian listeners are more familiar with that substance than others. And that had been developed in the 1870s. 
and sold in a distinctive bulbous jar and owned and distributed by Unilever in the UK. So that is a company that we are still familiar with. So that's interesting. Bovril apparently can be made into a drink, as seems to have been done in this story, by diluting it with hot water or sometimes even with milk. And then it could also be used as flavoring for soups, broth, stews, and porridge, or as a spread on toast or, I guess, anything, including one's tongue, (laughs) again, in the same way that people eat Marmite and Vegemite. But what's really funny is that the etymology of the name, as you might guess, the first part of that word comes from the Latin word for ox, you know, bovine, and um, there are many other words that have a similar etymology with which we are very familiar. But the vril suffix was actually taken from Edward Bulwer-Lytton's then popular novel, The Coming Race, which was published in 1870. And Edward Bulwer-Lytton is one of those Victorians who was really well known in his day, but has not necessarily stood the test of time as many of his contemporaries have. But certainly back then, you know, people were were 100% reading their Dickens, but they were also reading their Bulwer-Lytton. And we still come across him sometimes today. I would be shocked if there weren't a couple of Edward Bulwer-Lytton fans listening to the podcast at this very moment. But apparently in that book, I did not ever read it myself. Can't say that I am a Bulwer-Lytton fan in particular, or that I've ever read anything by him. But apparently in this book, The Coming Race, the plot revolves around a superior race of people called the Vrilya, who are powerful due to some sort of an electromagnetic substance called Vril, V-R-I-L. So the word Bovril is meant to indicate great strength obtained from an ox. And for anyone who's interested, the history of Bovril and how it came to uh, become a popular substance is pretty fascinating because uh, it has to do with the Franco-Prussian War and needing to provide meals to troops, which so often actually seems to be a motivating factor for advancements in food preparation or even in the concoction of various foodstuffs. And coming out of the Franco-Prussian War, the product was then marketed to civilians. Apparently, by the late 19th century, over 3,000 UK public houses, grocers, and chemists were selling Bovril. It continued to function as a war food in World War One, and it continues to be popular to this day. So this is one of those instances in which we Americans had no idea when we read the story what Bovril is, but apparently, especially among football enthusiasts. Bovril dissolved in hot water is sold in football stadiums all over the UK. If anyone would like to email us or contact us on social media and let us know some of the the nuances (laughs) and joys of Bovril, we would love to hear it. We learn yet another obscure, obscure to us, uh, facet of British culinary delight (laughs) through this story. The nurse gives her this Bovril and Lady Grail also wants some sherry in it. Mm, as, delicious. As one does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as one does. And Sir George produces the sherry. Uh, Lady Grail dies. And then a pack of strychnine is found not only in Sir George's cabin, but another packet is in his dinner jacket, seemingly stolen off of Miss McNaughton, who has some because Lady Grail had a heart condition. So the Cairo officials think that Elsie, i.e., Miss McNaughton and Sir George had teamed up to offer 
But Pamela goes and tells Parker Pine that she thinks Lady Grail killed herself because she's been especially crazy lately, warning off Pamela essentially by saying that Basil is in love with her and she's getting increasingly dramatic. Yeah, lots of alternate theories here, um, all sorts of confusion. Unless you're a heart specialist like Parker Pine and you can just get right to the matter with your figurative scalpel. Ooh. So let's talk about the world as it actually is because we have some clues. We are in a Parker Pine case oh and gosh. we have some clues, people. Clue number one, rules of inheritance. Sir George is titled but broke, of course, and uh, that is why he married his rich wife. When she dies, her money will go to him. And if he dies, remember, he has a relative on this boat as well. His money will go to Pamela, his niece. Deduction there is that the order in which people die, you know, there is there is an order of succession here. This is a bit of a property law clue. People have to die in the right order for money to flow in the right ways. So perhaps just thinking about the chain of potential deaths that has started and may potentially continue would uh, go a little little ways here to unraveling what's happening. So clue number two, the snippet of the letter could be guessed. It's definitely just a fill-in-the-blank kind of ye-basic clue because <laughs> what, what do you think? I mean, there are very few words that end like that, right? So sachet of dreams. How about a souchet of dreams? Well, I know. I thought about that. That would be... I, I know. I waited for you to say it. I.e. some sort of potion, love or otherwise, that you can consume mixed into a drink or otherwise actually makes some sense. And this is, in fact, what it probably read. And so the deduction is that Lady Grail had to have been convinced by someone who she would listen to. And remember, she doesn't really listen to anybody to take a romantic packet of mystery powder, which leads us to... Clue number three, and that is Pamela's point that Lady Grail is just getting increasingly crazy, seems to be losing it, rambling on about Basil when Pamela and Basil are basically engaged. Everyone pretty much knows that. And the deduction there is, you know, we've also seen Lady Grail directly ourselves as readers right before she died. She certainly did not seem crazy. She didn't seem as if she was losing her mind. So there has to be a reason why she was fixating on Basil that has nothing to do with insanity. So let's get into our resolution here. Basil did it. (laughs) (laughs) Not not only did he do it, but Pine directly confronts him and hands him a piece of paper and says, write your confession. There's not like a big denouement. Nobody's gathered into a room. He is not not Poirot. He does not need the drama. He prefers the quiet satisfaction of a job well done or a relationship firmly anchored on lies. (laughs) But yeah, Yeah. so basically what happened is that Basil romance Lady Grail. She just badly wanted everyone's attention. She talks about wanting gratitude, but she was a lonely woman, clearly. And Basil is young, he is handsome, and he was slowly poisoning her. Lady Grail falls hook, line, and sinker for this because she was she was hoping, essentially, that if Pine found information about her husband poisoning her, which she did think was happening, right. she could then leave him with all of her money and run off romantically with the dashing younger man. Alas, Basil's plan was that he was going to kill Lady Grail, frame Sir George in order to send him to the gallows, right. and then guess who inherits? Pretty, sweet, young Pamela, 
who who probably will, wouldn't be long for this world at that point. Although who knows? Maybe they really did have a a real who connection. Knows? But he was going to marry her. Right. The problem is for him, everybody starts to catch on and he has to make that final gambit. So he slips her the uh, package of strychnine with a note. The sachet of dreams, a.k.a. Yeah. strychnine. <laughs> so depressing. Anyway, he confesses the end. The end. What I do find, and this is a this is sort of the Parker Pine angle because he does have this emotional insight into the victims or at least the players within all of his stories. And it is a curiosity that Lady Grail was only comfortable leaving her husband for Basil West if her husband had already betrayed her by trying to murder her. If she couldn't be convinced of that, she probably would have stuck by him, or at least it wouldn't have played out as smoothly as right. it would have. It, it would have, and that is, you know, it's a curious little quirk of her personality. And I think ultimately, Lady Grail is presented as this horror show, but the point kind of is that she wasn't so bad. She was actually really loyal, and she was lonely, and she wanted more of a connection with people than she ever got, and she was easily hoodwinked by a handsome young man, and. It's ultimately kind of heartbreaking and and more of a sympathetic portrayal than we were led to believe at first, which is is interesting. No, it is. And, you know, I would say, so one of the other quote-unquote happy endings is that it's clear that Sir George and Miss McNaughton are going to end up together. Right. The thing about that is Sir George and Lady Grail's marriage is a marriage of convenience, and they clearly have loyalty to one another, but seem to really, really not care for one another. Mm-hmm. At some level, it all works out very well for Sir George in this, I guess. He gets the money and he gets the girl, or the woman, I should say. Who's apparently a very pretty, even for 35, which Lord only knows. Catherine Gray, 33, not, not in the first bloom of, of her life. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we don't have any adaptations of this one. We don't have any adaptations of any of the other Parker Pine stories that we'll cover. The only ones that were adapted were the two that we already covered in the Agatha Christie Hour. Alas, I think Parker Pine is ripe for some new adaptations. I don't know about you, Catherine. I'm I'm sure you're clamoring for some Parker Pine on your iPhone screen. We've talked about this before. There's a way to modernize them, actually, that would possibly be interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you could do quite a snazzy 21st century Parker Pine. But are there any parallels that we can draw between this Death on the Nile and the more famous and fabulous novel length Death on the Nile. Lady Grail reminded me slightly of Miss Van Schuyler. And of course she had a nurse on the ship, Miss Bowers, although Elsie McNaughton is really nothing like the efficient Miss Bowers. I was thinking about this when I read it because obviously, Mm -hmm. and the only way that I could have seen it is that there had been some sort of like double bluff with the um, strychnine packets in the dinner jacket. There you could have had something involving the dinner party and then also in Sir George's room. But I mean, then you would have had a different outcome to the story also. Right. I mean, it actually feels to me a little bit like this situation with the mystery of the blue train and murder on the Orient Express in that Christie knew a good setting when she landed upon one. And I think Mm -hmm. she 
wrote a slight but perfectly enjoyable short story in this first Death on the Nile with Parker Pine. But I think she realized what she had and then said, I need to really use that setting. I can do much better with that. I can use it to greater effect. And I have to think the same thing happened with, you know, a murder mystery set on a train after Mystery of the Blue Train, which we know she was not at all a fan of. And then obviously she outdid herself a couple of years later with Murder on the Orient Express. So I wonder if the same thing happened here. That's total conjecture, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were true. No, I, I wouldn't either. I mean, obviously we have exactly the same setting. It's a good, and it's a good setting. Murder on a boat going up the Nile. It's fantastic. That is Death on the Nile, Parker Pine style. Join us next time when we will be covering our next novel. We are so excited. That would be Appointment with Death, our next Hercule Poirot. We can't wait to get into that. And we should just mention, we have a very special episode coming up. We don't do too many interviews on this podcast, but we could not help ourselves from asking the preeminent Christie scholar, John Curran, who we have referenced many a time on this podcast before, to speak with us just about a whole bunch of different things. So we have that coming up within the next couple of weeks, and we just wanted to give you a heads up about that because we are so excited. So that should be a really fun episode. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram account is also All About Agatha. And we would really appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, or wherever you are listening to this episode. Uh, It really helps others find the podcast, and we love hearing from you. So, yeah, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.